an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. Home Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. May Martinez. Democratic lawmakers are proposing a bill that would let President Biden add four new members to the Supreme Court. Find out why Nancy Pelosi will not let that bill see the House floor for a vote. Plus, California aims to fully reopen by mid-June. So far, we've checked in on businesses in Lamert Park and Magnolia Park. Today, it's Little Tokyo. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez, thanks for joining us on this Friday. All right, we're going to kick off the show right away with State of Affairs. That's our weekly dive into California's politics pool. Now, you might think shifting the ideological balance of the U.S. Supreme Court from conservative to liberal as soon as possible might be very appealing to Democratic leaders. Now, it is to a few of them, but not all. And not to the most important one, the only one that could make it happen. Plus, if a recall election happens in California, the frontrunners to challenge Gavin Newsom may not be the candidates with the most political clout, but instead the candidates with the most social media influence. This week on State of Affairs, we're joined by Jack Pitney, Roy P. Crocker Professor of American Politics at Claremont McKenna College. Jack, welcome back. Hello. Also with us, Christina Bellantoni, Journalism Professor and Media Center Director at USC Annenberg. Christina, welcome to you as well. Thank you. All right. Last week, President Biden signed an executive order setting up a commission to study whether the Supreme Court should be expanded. Now, yesterday, a group of House and uh, Senate Democrats introed a uh, bill to add four seats. But Nancy Pelosi said she does not support it right now and will not bring it to a vote. Uh, Christina, what she say about this? Well, part of it, it's very easy to have the cover of a commission. Right. If the president has called for a commission that allows for effective study of the issue and uh, nobody has to actually take any action. Nancy Pelosi's margin of power is extremely slim. It was after the elections um, and when everybody got sworn in and it's gotten even slimmer, um, unfortunately, due to um, some people leaving the chamber and waiting on the results of some special elections. And she just doesn't have anything to lose. And the Supreme Court is an extremely motivating electoral factor for people on both sides. And I think she realizes that this is not the issue she wants to be fighting about right now. She has said many times she believes that the election should be fought over bread and butter issues where she thinks Democrats have a better advantage. And so when it becomes about the court and effectively a headline that Republicans will try and say that the Democrats are trying to upend history, even if that's not accurate, that's not a winning argument for her party. So she is effectively saying, let's let's study it. I support that. But no, we're not going to be seeing a vote on this anytime soon. And Jack, Republicans are saying the Democrats are trying to pack the court. Uh, what does that mean? 
It means that people are seeing the court as a political body. People routinely speak of democratic justices and Republican justices. And uh, by adding seats to the court, Democrats presumably would add more democratic seats to the court or justices that would be perceived as uh, sympathetic to the democratic side. It wasn't always this way. If you go back and look at the 1960 debate between Richard Nixon and John Kennedy, no one even mentioned the Supreme Court. It didn't occur to people to look at the court as a partisan body. But that's the state that we're in right now. Yeah, the Supreme Court has had nine justices for a long time, 1869. Uh, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that nine is a good number for her. And that it was a bad idea when FDR tried to expand it, and they might not even have the votes uh, to do it anyway. Uh, siding with uh, Nancy Pelosi on this are Senators Dick Durbin and Tim Kaine. Um, you know, I, I know what you mentioned, Christina, about how it's not something that she wants to put uh, the focus on right now. But I mean, when I think of D.C., I think of power, and Democrats control all three legislative branches. So, I mean, why wouldn't Nancy Pelosi want right. you know, the Supreme Court to appear Democratic as soon as possible? Yeah, well- what better time, right? It's also just kind of an interesting issue that she has so much power here in calling for a vote when Supreme Court justices are confirmed by the Senate. Um, Right now, Democrats are agitating for a change within the party, and particularly the progressive side of the party says, look, Mitch McConnell stuck it to the Democrats for many years. And if we don't do this, we risk a Democratic president never getting the Supreme Court justice confirmed because there's precedent now for an opposing party to just block, block, and block. The votes really aren't there to make the change anyway. So the commission, again, it's it's like that cover of like, let's talk about this. Let's get all the constitutional uh, reasoning for why it's okay. And then we just see you know, what happens. And maybe if they don't lose seats in the next election and they do continue to have total power in D.C., then it's an issue they're willing to take up. But I would I would highly doubt it. I think this is not the, the election that Nancy Pelosi wants to have. And Jack, Jerry Nadler was quoted as saying, we're not packing the court, we're unpacking it. I don't quite understand what that means. You put more clothes in a suitcase, that means you're packing it. But that's okay. That's uh, semantics there, I think. And also, uh, Ed Markey, uh, one of the senators uh, backing this bill, says we must expand the court and we must abolish the filibuster to do it. So, Jack, it makes me think that there's a lot more pork to this bill than just meets the eye. Uh, That's right. And a lot of Democrats are concerned, even if they're looking for Supreme Court decisions that favor the more liberal side of the spectrum, uh, their concern is if the Democrats pull this off, Republicans will do the same thing the next time they're in control of the political branches. And after a few administrations, uh, you'd have to put off the demolition of RFK Stadium because that's where you'd have to have the meetings of the Supreme Court. Uh, That stadium's a dump, by the way, Jack. I've been in it many times. It's not a great place. (laughs) Uh, Well, give the justices some humility anyway, but uh, uh, that's the real argument. I think uh, a lot of Democrats are skittish precisely because of the possibility of partisan tit for tat. One more thing on this, Christina. Would any of this be even happening or mentioned if Mitch McConnell had at least held hearings on Merrick Garland? Probably. Right. Because, you know, Ruth Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have died. And I believe that this would have been a a nasty, awful fight under the Trump administration for court justices, no matter what had happened with Merrick Garland and the Obama administration in in his final year. This is just an an issue. Uh, Mitch McConnell has demonstrated that he wants his legacy to be reshaping the entire judiciary. And 
he's well on his way to that happening. He was able to affect a really, really substantial amount of change on behalf of particularly cultural conservatives in a very short period of time. And he doesn't want that legacy overturned. And if he has an opportunity, he wants to strengthen it. And one more last thing on this, uh, Jack. If, say, let's just imagine ourselves uh, next year. If by next year we're in the process, we're actually in the process of expanding the court to 13, uh, it's on its way to happening. What kind of political road would this be taking us down, Jack, you think, in this country, considering how partisan things are already? Well, uh, again, Republicans would be planning to uh, do the same thing when they get control, but also each of the new nominations would be hyper-partisan. You think the uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, Gorsuch nominations were very contentious. Uh, Just wait till you get Democrats adding seats to the court. Republicans would go all out to find whatever they could to defeat these people. Uh, And uh, that would not be very good for the future of the court, which is one reason why Justice Breyer uh, has strongly indicated that he doesn't think this is a good idea. So we're State of Affairs with uh, Jack Pitney of Claremont McKenna College. Also with us, Christina Bellantoni from USC Annenberg. All right, uh, now uh, going back here now to California, still a couple of weeks to go before we know if there are enough valid signatures to trigger a recall election of Gavin Newsom, and then a few more months after that to actually schedule it. Uh, if it happens, though, the one big difference between 2021 recall and 2003 is social media. Social media did not exist uh, in 2003. Jack, from what you remember about how it all went down back then, how do you think social media might define this one in 2021 if it happens? Well, it is very different. Uh, As you point out, there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't Facebook, there was the internet, but it was a very different kind of internet. Uh, The difference is this time people can find their own social media silo. If you're on the right side of the spectrum, you can load up on all kinds of criticism of Gavin Newsom and the uh, anti-masking propaganda and all the rest. If you're a supporter of Gavin Newsom, uh, you can get lots of social media telling you how horrible uh, the pro-recall forces are. Uh, It's not really good. Neither side is going to give you an entirely accurate picture of what's going on. And it guarantees that uh, any kind of uh, recall campaign is going to be very harsh and very contentious. And I think uh, some might equate votes to followers or likes, because I just think back to 2003, Arnold had a lot of fame. Arnold Schwarzenegger had a lot of fame and a big following. But I mean, now when you think of some of the names that are being thrown around, Caitlyn Jenner is uh, speaking with GOP consultants about a possible run. And I did some numbers. I crunched some numbers. So Gavin Newsom has in total Facebook, Twitter and Instagram 3.7 million followers. Caitlyn Jenner has 3.5 just on Twitter alone. Another almost 11 million on Instagram, 1.4 million more on Facebook. That's a total of 15.8 million followers that uh, Caitlyn Jenner could reach on her own. Uh, Christina, you're the journalism professor in the room, so how might uh, a a very different news media landscape factor in along with social media in a recall election? Right. I mean, for for those of us old enough to remember covering this, you know, Schwarzenegger being on Jay Leno was an extremely influential, you know, moment in that election. I would say the other difference is that you saw somebody win in the recall and then go on to be an effective and fairly popular governor uh, for a time. That that is something that in a way it, it opens the doors for these challengers to Newsom. But you know, everything plays out in social media just in, in real time. And unfortunately, from a journalism perspective, I think we lose some of the substance. I have no doubt that our strong news organizations, you know, Cal Matters and the Sacramento Bee and the Mercury News and the Chronicle and of course the LA Times really will dig a lot into this recall election and the candidates. But how many people are going to see 
see that if they just see the memes that are out there or um, a, a campaign that is waged through popularity. But all that said, you know, Hillary Clinton had all of the tools available to her to win that game and then lost it to, to Donald Trump. So I just think that you really can't determine based on, you know, followers or popularity, how it's going to go uh, or celebrity. Uh, Christia, you forgot to mention KPCC on those uh, news sources. Those, <laughs> of, co- I would, no, it's, of course, I, I, I mentioned newspapers. As oh, my, okay, okay. That's my, yeah. I, I get it. I understand. That's, so I was switching gears now. This week, some parts of uh, LAUSD got back to in-person instruction, but the LA Times found out that only 3 million of California's 6.2 million K-12 through kids have the option to go back. Now, even those kids in school are only going to get a few hours a week of class time with older students on Zoom while in class. Uh, some, people, some parents in California have called this Zoom in a room. Uh, Christina, Gavin Newsom is pushing schools to reopen but will not order them to reopen what do you what do you make of that strategy you know i'm the mother of a four-year-old and i have many times over the last year been very grateful he's not in school yet because we haven't had to face this decision it is so brutal to think about you know what's the risk what's the risk to your household what's the risk to the kid what's the risk to the teachers and i don't think this is a one-size-fits-all solution and part of the problem newsom is facing politically is that not only have there been so many changes in COVID restrictions and how open the state is, they're getting communicated without a real clear plan sometimes, particularly to educators. I have some friends who, you know, work in small school districts and other parts of the state. And, you know, they're learning as he's at the podium what their plan's going to be. And then the plan changes the next week. That uncertainty is making parents just as crazy as the idea of Zoom in a room. And I just don't know that if anything's going to be normal until we have true wide vaccinated population and a clear option for students, right? Kids cannot get vaccinated right now and they can get sick. And with the variants, there's just so little information that we know about long-term effects of even being sick. And I, I get all of the hesitation that everyone has to be in that classroom. And I also understand parents who really want to get their kids back to the same type of learning they experienced a year ago. Jack, you think Gavin Newsom on this is channeling his inner Jerry Brown in a canoe kind of thing? Paddle to the left, paddle to the right, uh, the canoe goes forward. Uh, That's right. And uh, something that Jerry Brown probably would have raised by this time is uh, difference in local circumstances. Uh, You know, one school will be very different from another, even within the same community. One school district will have more resources, may have school buildings that have great ventilation, others not so great ventilation, uh, very different uh, situation for handling COVID. Uh, So it does kind of make a lot of sense to leave a lot of the decisions to uh, to the local schools and the local school districts. You know, and now parents are taking matters into their own hands. Uh, LAUSD has been sued this week. Parents in Fremont uh, sued their district to open. North County, a judge, will not force Oceanside and San Marcos uh, school districts to reopen after uh, parents were suing there. Uh, Christina, when this is all over, you mentioned you're a parent. I mean, parents and districts have to work together again for the sake of their kids. I mean, this is all going to be over at some point. You think this will all leave a bad taste in everyone's mouth? I mean, especially when it comes to lawsuits, court filing. And all that. I mean, that that can't be something that anyone remembers with fondness. I, I, I agree with you on that. At the same time, given the uncertainty 
and whatever students end up, if they're back in the classroom, they're not, there's not that much time left in the school district. And then what happens over the summer? What do we know? I would not be surprised. And even looking at our own challenges in, in higher ed, that we have more changes afoot, whether that's more restrictions, if a variant pops up or it turns out the vaccines need boosters and people aren't able to get that, whatever. I can imagine a million different possibilities based on everything we've faced over the last year. I think we we just can't make any determination about what it's going to be like yet. And I also, I've read a lot of articles about the, you know, the lost year and how kids are going to struggle forever and what they're facing with. And we just have to know, like we all experienced similar things. They were certainly not equal. And we know that it really exacerbated, um, you know, economical differences between families, but generally everybody lost a year and probably everybody's going to be okay. And can we just make sure that we're doing it in the safest way possible for everyone that is involved? And Jack, is this going to be one of the things that's going to be tough to move forward from considering that uh, lawsuits uh, got in the mix? Uh, yeah, there's scarcely a political question in America that doesn't become a legal one. Uh, you know, one big winner uh, coming out of this entire episode will be the tri- will be the trial bar. Uh, but uh, at least at the very end of this year, some kids are getting a few hours a week of school. Doesn't sound like much, but if you're like my kids, both in high school, uh, if you haven't seen your friends face to face in more than a year. Uh, those few hours a week are really important. That's Jack Pitney, Roy P. Crocker, Professor of American Politics at Claremont McKenna College. Also with us, Christina Bellantoni, Journalism Professor and Media Center Director at USC Annenberg. Jack, Christina, have a great weekend. Sounds great. Thank you. All right, more Take Two coming up in 60 seconds. Stay with us. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. The pandemic has been a roller coaster ride for restaurants like the long standing Suihiro Cafe in Little Tokyo, which serves Japanese comfort food. KPCC's Josie Huang checked in a year after she first talked to the owner. Now, the business has lasted through the pandemic when some 20 others in Little Tokyo did not make it, but it's all come at a great personal cost. When I first spoke with Kenji Suzuki a year ago, he was managing Suihiro from home with four-year-old twin girls running around. There was this time when they were in the other room. They got a hold of a pair of scissors and cut their hair off. One of them is not too bad, but the other one, I mean, she looks like a monk. (laughs) Kenji worked from home because he's in partial remission from leukemia, and he has to be careful about his immune system. He brainstormed ways to keep the restaurant afloat. For the first time, you could order food online. Delivery was free on orders over 25 bucks. Plus, you get a roll of toilet paper, which back then was hard to come by. And I I stole this off of a a Yahoo uh, news page where a restaurant was doing really phenomenal business when he started giving away toilet paper. So we kind of included that to see what happens. 
Kenji was willing to try anything if it could save the restaurant that his mom, Junko Suzuki, opened 49 years ago. I promised myself that when my mom was still alive that I wouldn't close the restaurant down. Uh, there's a Japanese saying that businesses are usually run into the ground by the second generation. So I just want to make sure that doesn't happen on my watch. Kenji likes to joke the restaurant was his mom's favorite child, but it was also her most challenging. Junko incurred debt to pay her Japanese food suppliers when she was starting out. And after the 92 riots, she struggled as diners stayed away. Even when the restaurant wasn't doing well, she didn't know how to quit. She didn't know that she could fail. Junko did all of this while raising Kenji and his sister on her own after she and their dad divorced. My mother worked all day, worked all night, and nobody was home. So my sister and I, we would eat frozen dinners. One of my favorites was a turkey, turkey dinner. Sixth grade is when Kenji began helping out at the restaurant by washing dishes. He knew his mom eventually wanted him to take over the business, but he stayed away, remembering how hot the kitchen got. His 20s were spent in car sales. Then he hit his 30s. And what I couldn't see before, I began to see the way society was treating her. The woman, the minority, you know, trying to you know, run a business. It was really tough for her, really tough. Kenji came back and started to manage a staff of dozens and a menu with nearly 200 items. During the pandemic, Kenji had to pare down offerings, but he kept the most popular dishes like the house special. Eggplant, bell pepper and beef stirred fried with a miso sauce. Another thing that Kenji had to cut was staff down to a skeleton crew. He had to. Sales fell to as low as 90 percent of normal. Kenji used to talk to his mom about operations, but not during the pandemic. Junko had developed Alzheimer's and was living at a nursing home in Boyle Heights. When I called Kenji recently to ask how he'd been doing in the year since we talked, he told me he was grayer, his body worn down. But he noted he had kept his promise about his mom. Well, I told you that I, I wanted to keep the restaurant open as long as my mom was alive. Uh, well, COVID took my mom in January. Junko Suzuki died at age 84, a week after she was diagnosed with COVID. Kenji, who is 58, is not sure if he's going to keep running the restaurant. His wife wants to move back to her native Japan, especially now with the surge in anti-Asian incidents. With all the uh, Asian bashing going on right now, it's just like, well, we're not going to be welcomed in this country. Maybe we, we should just go back. But Kenji, he's torn. He says he's met the goal of keeping the restaurant open while his mom was alive. That pressure is gone. But lately, he's been telling himself that it's her legacy he now needs to keep alive. I'm Josie Wong. All right, staying with the pandemic, the COVID-19 vaccination campaign of the Department of Veterans Affairs is going well. The VA has vaccinated a higher percentage of its patients compared with civilian vaccination efforts. Now, for the American Homefront Project, a collaboration of public radio stations, including KPCC, Jay Price has that story. A new law called the Save Lives Act says the VA can now vaccinate all veterans and their spouses and caregivers, not just those enrolled in its health care system. This is a huge jump, even for a system as large as the VA's. We've been targeting our efforts to date at the roughly 6.4 million vets who rely on us for all of their care. That's VA Secretary Dennis McDonough at a recent House Veterans Affairs hearing. As you step up the additional categories that you all have now enacted, you get up to around 24 million. It's kind of a 4X 
growth. Four times more veterans, plus potentially millions of spouses and caregivers. And the additions are different in significant ways from those the VA is vaccinating now. One of its most successful local medical systems at getting vets vaccinated is the one anchored by the VA Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. It's moved so quickly that it was able to open appointments to enrolled vets of all ages, regardless of their health status, weeks ahead of the state's general population. One key Key reason for that success, though, won't apply to the new pool Congress just added to the VA's list. I uh, received a text message and I also received an email from the VA. 32-year-old Army vet Dante Hester had received not just a text, but an email too, alerting him that he could make an appointment for the vaccine. So there he was in a quick moving line at a makeshift clinic inside a repurposed dining area at the medical center. Dr. Christopher Hostler is the chief of public health and epidemiology at the Durham VA. We already have a dedicated network with all these patients. We know who our patients are, and so we're able to schedule directly through text message. But the VA doesn't know all the unenrolled vets, so there will have to be different forms of outreach. Again, VA Secretary Dennis McDonough speaking to members of Congress. We're going to use every channel we have. Uh, We're going to use U.S. mail. We're going to use standard email. We're going to use our social media platforms. Uh, This new tool that our technologists here in the building have come up with called Vet Text has worked exceedingly well. Vet Text is an automated texting system the VA has found effective for things like scheduling appointments. The VA has already opened vaccinations to all veterans in a few pilot programs around the country. From those, it's beginning to gather information on how best to register those not enrolled in the VA system and figuring out what outreach methods work. It's also monitoring how to manage its vaccine allocation for the additional vets. Getting enough vaccine to expand the eligibility pool is a crucial issue, said Dr. Jane Kim, who leads the VA's national COVID-19 vaccination project team. We do want to make sure that whatever vaccine supply we have does get offered to our veterans receiving care with us first. And as we have increased supply to offer it to the expanded populations that are in the Save Lives Act. The VA gets its supply of vaccine directly from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. A spokesman for that agency said it will increase the allocation of vaccine to the VA, but is still working out the details of how much and when. Dr. Kim says the VA wants to manage expectations until there's more supply and it's sure it's ready in other ways. We heard loud and clear from our veterans prior to having any COVID vaccination, make sure you don't overpromise, and we've held that in our minds is um, let's make sure we have what we need to serve you. And that's gone pretty well so far. The VA doesn't know how many to expect, just that not all the newly eligible veterans are going to seek appointments. Many will have already gotten vaccinated elsewhere or plan to. For now, it's asking vets, caregivers, and spouses to register on its COVID-19 vaccine webpage so it can reach them. I'm Jay Price in Durham, North Carolina. Why do things have value when other things don't? Why does a particular rock, because it's more shiny, have more value than a different rock or those pieces of paper in your wallet? Why do they have value to buy things and other pieces of paper don't? It's really all in the eye of the beholder. And if you're one of the cool kids, you know all about NFTs and why they're really valuable right now. Find out all about it when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
Why do Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley love what they love? And who will prevail in a live quiz show? Are you ready to have a good time? Go Fact Yourself is back live at the Crawford. Join hosts J. Keith Van Stratton and Helen Hong for a night of trivia and super secret surprise guests in this live taping of the Quiz Show podcast. It's March 23rd. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm e. Martinez. All right, by now you may have come across the three letters NFT, which stands for Non-Fungible Tokens. Yeah, it's uh, not really easy to understand what that means. But NFTs have appeared all over the art world, all over Hollywood, and now they've made their way to meme creators. For this and more, we're joined by Paige Skinner. She's a freelance journalist whose recent piece for LA Mag is entitled Meme Makers Are Getting In on the NFT Game and Making Big Bucks. All right, Paige, first things first, what exactly is an NFT? Who can buy and who can sell NFTs? Yeah, uh, like you said, it's kind of complicated to understand, but an NFT is essentially a non-fungible token. Um, And just kind of think of them as a digital trading card. So if you own an NFT, you own the original version of it, and it's verified on a blockchain. And so anyone can sell an NFT and anyone can buy an NFT. However, you do buy them um, with the cryptocurrency Ether. At the risk of diving further into the rabbit hole, verified on a blockchain, what does that mean? Oh my gosh, uh, uh, <laughs> this I have no idea, but I know that <laughs> I know it all takes place online, and um, and when you uh, buy it, it can always be verified back to its original owner and also back to the artist who created it. Now, just for an example, so we played that uh, Fleetwood Mac song at the at the uh, at the start of the segment, and that video, that famous video of the guy on a skateboard dancing or not dancing on a skateboard, riding on a skateboard to Fleetwood Mac's song, drinking that uh, juice drink, that is an NFT. At least the original video is an NFT, technically, right? Something like that well, along those lines. Um, yes, he tried to sell it as an NFT. However, he needed permission from Stevie Nicks because yeah. it was her song and she didn't give him permission. So he was not actually able to sell it as an NFT. So while um, that video it does exist, he wasn't able to sell it as an NFT. So no. Okay. So, okay. But, so NFTs then, why did they become so popular and why now? I think just because our whole life is online and cryptocurrency is really big right now. And so, you know, decades past, hundreds of years ago, owning an original art piece was a huge deal and something to brag about. But now owning an original digital piece is something people are really interested in. And I think it's just the culture shift. We're spending all of our time online. So why not get into essentially digital trading cards. Now, your article focuses specifically on meme makers joining the NFT craze and and then making a profit from it. Uh, Can you walk us through that part of it and tell us why they've decided to jump on board? Yeah, I think meme creators are really interested in NFTs because it ties 
their meme to them. So when these memes explode, not a lot of people know where they come from or who created them. And so with NFTs, they are always going to have that tied back to them, which I think is really important for them. Also, memes on their own don't have a ton of monetary value in before this. So them being able to sell it for hundreds of thousands of dollars is obviously a huge deal. And it's not a shock that they're wanting to cash in on this. Memes are like magic, right? I mean, they do kind of just appear. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, you think about your favorite memes and the memes you've been using for years, but you don't really know where they come from. Um, you don't ever really have to attribute them when you use them. Um, and so meme creators are really excited about this because A, they're getting money and they're getting credit. So who are some of the meme creators uh, that have profited from NFTs and, and how much have they sold them for? Yeah. Well, uh, Yin Cat, the flying cat through space with the Pop-Tart body. Um, his owner, that owner is Chris Torres, and he made $590,000 from oh, selling wow. that. Yeah. And then you have Bad Luck Brian, who made $45,000. You have Grumpy Cat, who we all know. Um, Grumpy Cat had her own Lifetime movie, merchandise, everything. But that NFT sold for 100000 Overly Attached Girlfriend sold for nearly half a million. Success Kids sold for 35000 And a lot of these memes are kind of the older memes from like 2007. Uh -huh. They're kind of um, when you, they're kind of like the old memes. Um, because I think now with TikTok, memes go viral. A new meme goes viral almost every day. But it's those like old school memes that are nearly 15 years old that I think people are finding a lot of value in because they are what we think of when we think of memes. So on that value question, um, Paige, I mean, why are people paying or willing to pay so much for them? I mean, what's the advantage of owning something like this? I think it's just, I mean, what's the advantage of owning, you know, a Derek Jeter baseball card? Uh, what's the, it about, the, the value of these NFTs are only as much as what people are willing to pay. And, you know, if people have money, then <laughs> they're going to want to buy, you know, the NFT of a meme. Um, I don't think it's that odd because we've seen people throughout history buy things uh, or original pieces of art or, uh, you know, a baseball card, like I said. Yeah. So now that they're now they're just buying the original version of a meme. And I think that's very 2021 and very uh, reflective of our culture today. Yeah, and it goes to the question of value, right? I mean, so like that piece of paper in someone's wallet, why does that piece of paper allow you to buy things when another piece of paper doesn't? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? That's Paige Skinner, freelance journalist whose recent piece uh, for LA Mag is titled, uh, Meme Makers Are Getting In on the NFT Game and Making Big Bucks. Paige, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. The Oscars, the Academy Awards are this Sunday. I can't wait to see it. Uh, they don't have a host. There's a host like right here that they could have asked. I would have done it for a very small fee. 
Um, but that's another question for another day. Now, one of the movies that is nominated is Mank. It's about Herman Mankiewicz, a screenwriter back with Orson Welles, who created Citizen Kane. It's a great film that we're going to find out is going to win anything when the Oscars get going on Sunday. But the making behind the movie, why it was made in the script, and how long it took to get to the screen is a story that you're going to want to hear. That's coming up next when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow up moment. Vidiot's and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history because movie history is LA history. Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and most places you get your podcasts, Sammy Martinez. Citizen Kane is considered one of, if not the greatest film ever made. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards and one for Best Screenplay. Now, the film about that film and the guy who wrote it has been nominated for 10 Oscars. The Netflix movie Mank is about Herman Mankiewicz, the screenwriter who, if Orson Welles had his way, might not have ended up with that writing credit. Mank tells a story of what inspired the Citizen Kane screenplay and how a wisecracking, jaded writer, played by Gary Ullman, used his masterpiece to take a shot at the media moguls who shaped the political narratives at the time. It's also a peek back in time to California and Los Angeles of the 1930s and 40s in painstakingly perfect detail. Earlier this year, we spoke to Mank's production designer, Donald Graham Burt, and also director David Fincher. And today, just weeks, a few weeks before the Academy Awards, we bring it to you again. The screenplay for Mank was written by Fincher's father, so I asked him why he chose Herman Bankovitz to write a film about. My father was retiring from writing magazine stories and asked me if there was a story I would be interested in reading a screenplay about. And I'd read Pauline Kael's sort of screed. And was just fascinated with who Herman Mankiewicz was. And that's Raising Cain, right? Raising Cain, which which brought up that's the debate correct. of who wrote Citizen Kane. Yes. So Pauline Kael wrote this essay, and I had read it in middle school. And when my father sort of approached me to say, I'm looking to try and do something way more difficult <laughs> than writing stories for a Smithsonian, I said, well, why don't you write a screenplay for Herman Minkowitz? And it was, it was not, it was never with the intention of like venting the WGA spleen um, <laughs> as with regards to, you know, credit arbitration. It was mostly, I just found him in what I had read to be a funny and interesting character. And I, and I sort of liked the idea of, uh, of a guy meandering through Hollywood, biting all the hands that, 
reached out to feed him. Yeah, and he definitely did. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Donald, you and David have worked together before. The Social Network, Gone Girl, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which uh, won you an Oscar for Best Art Direction. What did David tell you that he had in mind for what he wanted Mank to look and feel like? Actually, he first brought it up one day. Um, we were across the street in the coffee shop. I don't know if you recall, David. And we were prepping another film, which was postponed, but he had brought up to me in a conversation when we were discussing that other project, he said, you know, and then after this, I have this, this film that I really want to do. I want to do it black and white and it's a period film. And that's kind of all, that's the only seed he really planted when that postponed, it was a month later or so. And then this man came to the forefront and I remember meeting with him and David and I actually started six weeks before the actual production time to go scouting yeah. and look at locations. Yeah. And I remember being in the hallway outside David's office. And I don't know if you know this moment, David, but we were out by where those long benches are, sort of yeah. those built-in benches. And David just said to me, I want this film to be like you're in the film vaults and you're going through all the films and you see Citizen Kane and you pull it out. And then right next to it, you see this film, Mank. And you, you pull it out and you look at it and you go, oh, wow, this was made then too. I didn't even know about this film. It, it, just in that brief moment, it was like he wanted it to be a film that looked like and felt like it was made during that time period and it was sort of lost in the archives. So Donald, then, okay, when, when you found that out or, and you had that in your head, where did that take your mind for potential shooting locations? It wasn't so much locations, I think, to start with. I think it, it began with, you know, obviously reading the script and getting an understanding of the locales that are scripted. But also it took my mind into getting into research, you know, mm -hmm. just almost immediately and starting to get a sense of what L.A. was during that time period. You know, David's very hands-on as a director. He looks at every location photo through a digital site system he uses and he sort of started marking things that he wanted to look at. And I would look at his markings. And then from there, we proceeded to go out. And during this period of sort of pre-production, -pre I mean, for me, it's like, it's a godsend to just be able to drive around with him, look at locations and hear what he has to say. Because, you know, the great thing about David, and I'm going to embarrass you, David, David has a movie in his head. And I tell people this all the time. And you go around and you scout locations and you do it in an atmosphere where you're free to feel creative. And he starts to talk about the tone, the lighting, what works, what doesn't, how he sees things. And then as we look at locations, we start to discern what needs to be built, what can be filmed on location. And in actuality, I think sometimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, David, when sure. we look at locations that don't work, we almost learn more than when we find locations that do work. You know, pre-production is is a godsend when you get it and if you use it. And and I always feel like the greatest thing about directing movies for a living is there's no such thing as downtime. You know, there's the time that you spend in a van going from Pasadena to to the Getty Villa, but that time is either you can you can talk about lunch or you can talk about the movie. And and a lot of time is spent going, ah, well, that's interesting that you asked that question because it, it keys into something else. So, you know, just making those laps around the track, you know, as much yeah. as it feels like the Indy 500 and, you know, there's 499 laps before the one that anyone cares about, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that time before everyone's punching the clock and you're truly, you know, up against it, is 
is the most creative time in, in filmmaking. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of moments where you find something that was not in the travelogue. It wasn't on the brochure of the place that they're showing you. And you walk down a hallway and I turn to Don and Don's eyes light up and he's like, this could be good for, and you go, yeah. And, and that part of it is the gift. You know, for me watching Mank, the star location for the film was uh, where this scene was shot. Now, so here's Mank talking to actress uh, Marion Davies, played by Amanda Seyfried, uh, after they walked out of a dinner party where she said something she should not have. What did I do that was so terrible? I guess I shouldn't have said that thing about the cabinet in front of Tugwell, but since when does anybody care what I have to say? Those things just pop out of my mouth, and the moment they do, I feel like... Like, like you got caught, jambes en l'air. <gasps> no. Well, do you always just say whatever you think? Hmm. You're blushing. Am not. Are too. Am not. Are too. I can see it. Even in the dark. Well, what can I tell you, Mank? Mary and Doris went to convent school. Hedda! <laughs> well, uh, what's a gossip columnist around this castle when you need one? And by castle, it's Hearst Castle. Uh, David, I don't think they allow much or any filming there. So where was that scene shot? That was the Huntington yeah. Gardens. Yeah. And, and again, this is a perfect example. You know, Don and I sort of wandered off and went into these orange groves and saw what is a mausoleum <laughs> on, <laughs> on the grounds <laughs> at the Huntington. And we thought, well, we like the colonnade and we like this, the marble of the stairs. And if we don't know that it's a mausoleum and we don't know that there's a body interred there, if they come around it, we could possibly do a map painting of the Neptune pool in the distance. And so this thing that wasn't really on the menu became the reason we, we went in it and endured Huntington Library because it is not easy to shoot at the Huntington Library. It is not for the faint of heart. But um, but that's a perfect example of oftentimes you're looking for a, a venue for two people to plop down and have a conversation. And this could have been on a on a park bench, you know, surrounded by bougainvillea, and we could have just saw this giant cumulus clouds at night. But we found this thing that this little area and obviously it's it's something that they're proud of at the Huntington but you know it's a little morbid if you if you know what it is and we were just like well but if you only see a piece of it and if he comes around and I can do a mad painting and I can take this out and I can hear the sound of the ocean in the distance this might be a great like little promenade that overlooks the Neptune pool and so that's what we ended up doing so this is just by way of saying that there are so many conversations that one has with the extremely talented that that allow for a deeper understanding of the tributaries and back alleys that one can take in order to create a much bigger impression. We're talking to production designer Donald Burt and director David Fincher about their new film called Mank. So Donald, when, when you realized that this was going to be the place where Hearst Castle was going to be portrayed in the film, but it's the Huntington. What did you have to do to recreate the the outdoor and indoor opulence of Hearst Castle? Huntington was just used for the exteriors. And, you know, we looked at a lot of research and I was fortunate to find research actually from the period and some very good research that was photographed at night on the exterior grounds of what was called then San Simeon. And 
we sort of, we kept it simple. And I think that was one of the keys to it. You know, we kind of kept looking at the research and we saw that these sculpted lampposts with these glowing globes on top of them kept reoccurring in the images and that there was, you know, an abundance of sort of sculpted balustrade and stone benches and statuary. And we didn't really indulge beyond those elements, you know, because there's so much more at San Simeon. And we filmed actually in Huntington Gardens, we filmed in like, what, three or four different areas, right, David? Yeah, and four we, or five. The zoo stuff was... Zoo you know, stuff too. Yeah, they're monkeys, giraffes, elephants. I mean, yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, but we just kind of kept using some of those, you know, sculptural elements like the lampposts and so forth in each location just to sort of tie it all together and... You know, I always think simplicity is the best thing for something like that. Now, I'm going to end with a question that I'm pretty sure would make Christopher Nolan throw up, but I'll give it a whirl with you, David Fincher. I've seen your film three times. The first was on my phone, the second time on a <laughs> tablet, the third time on my laptop. Um, are you okay with making a film as visually rich as Mank, knowing that maybe it's going to be the primary way that uh, they'll be consumed for who knows how long? Yes. And that's not to say that, you know, look, it's a difficult thing to say to, you know, really, really talented craftsmen and artisans. Don't worry, this is only going to be seen on someone's phone. So I don't. <laughs> and I never have. And you, you can't change time and you can't change the way things are headed. And people want to avail themselves of this. That is not to say that you sh shoot fewer takes because it doesn't matter because it's only going to be seen on an iPad. If, if you care about it, you're protecting for it to be seen on a 45 foot screen. But I don't really equivocate between a, a 65 inch, you know, plasma uh, or a 45 foot screen or, or a six inch display on your phone. I, I sort of feel like our responsibility is to, is to think about the biggest possible venue so I feel like, yeah, you know, opening weekend, we would all love, you know, for a hundred million dollars worth of consumers to line up around the block and, and, and go see our wares. But if you're only thinking that way about the stories that you're telling, that in, in and of itself seems limiting. My attitude about you know, downstream exploitation of a story and how it's seen, you know, is not that different from the publishing world, which is I don't look at the paperback as an inferior version of the story. I look at it as an expansion of the people that might have access to it. Now, to be clear, guys, before the pandemic, I would go to two or three movies a week. I love being in a movie theater. So, Donald, I mean, I'm going to regret, I think, if I never go back into a theater because I'm just not comfortable not seeing what you were able to produce with Mank. But considering that this is a reality, uh, are, are you OK with it? I am. I mean, I think, you know, I think as David was saying, you know, the world is changing and the platforms on which people view things is changing. And, you know, to just have it in a theater, you're, you're taking away a whole audience that, you know, maybe they don't see it in the big screen and see all the details and all the visual details. But, you know, the purpose of the film is the story and, you know, what's being told through it. And, and I always kind of keep that in mind as I work. I mean, you know, there's so many things that have changed it. And, 
you know, the COVID being another element and, you know, to be able to have it so that you can see it on your monitor at home, I think is, is a blessing, is a gift. That's production designer Donald Burt and director David Fincher. Their Netflix film is called Mank. Donald and David, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, if you missed any part of today's Take Two, you really got to go wherever you get podcasts because there we will be smiling, waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us uh, on social media. We're on Twitter at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. That's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back Monday at 2. Marketplace is next.